Hi, I'm Joseph Del Santos, and this show is Health Conscious. I created the show with a couple collaborators, Jonathan Abbott and Sup and Shaw, here at Cornell. We created the show with the intention of informing students as well as the wider public about important topics in healthcare in an easily understood manner. This show will cover general news in healthcare, interviews with a variety of healthcare leaders, and various other segments that will be produced by ourselves and contributors on our Cornell campus. I come from Southern California where I lived my entire life before coming here to Cornell. I'm currently pursuing a Master's of Health Administration at the Sloan Program in Health Administration. I went to UC Irvine for my undergraduate degree. I have various interests in healthcare that come from patient experience, operations, innovation, quality improvement, healthcare access, um, hospitality, and design in healthcare. And uh, my main interest for doing this podcast is I really enjoy podcasts in general, and I thought it'd be really interesting to contribute um, to the podcast universe in this way, talk about healthcare. Today's show, we're going to talk about the pharmaceutical industry. Specifically, I'll be talking about the price of drugs for consumers and for health systems. For this discussion, we're going to talk about two articles. The first article is a New York Times article by Charles Ornstein and Katie Thomas called Prescription Drugs May Cost More With Insurance Than Without, and it was written on December 9th. The second article is based from a news release put out by Intermountain Health, which is an which is an integrated health system in Utah and Idaho that on January 18th uh, announced that they're going to be leading a collaboration with Ascension Health, SSM Health, and Trinity Health in consultation with the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs to form a new not-for-profit generic drug company. So let's first break down a few terms. So when we talk about the pharmaceutical industry, we're talking about prescription drug companies that discover, develop, produce, and market drugs or, or pharmaceutical drugs for use as medications. These companies spend billions of dollars in research and development to create groundbreaking and really life-changing drugs. Many of these drugs produce a tremendous amount of public good and cure various diseases that decades ago society thought would be incurable. Next thing I'm gonna talk about are generics. So generic drugs are pharmaceutical drugs that are equivalent to the brand name or prescription product in dosage, strength, route of administration, quality, performance, and intended use. But these do not carry a brand name. The generic drugs may differ from the original in non-essential characteristics, such as color, taste, and packaging. And there are companies, uh, they could be pharmaceutical companies or generic drug companies, that sell generics, usually at very low margins. Pharmacy benefit managers, as defined by the American Pharmacists Association, are primarily responsible for developing and maintaining the formulary, contracting with pharmacies, negotiating discounts and rebates with drug manufacturers, and processing and paying prescription drug claims. For the most part, they work with self-insured companies and government programs striving to maintain or reduce the pharmacy expenditures of the plan while concurrently trying to improve healthcare outcomes. So how did we get here? I'm gonna take you back a little bit. 1984, the year that the Bulls drafted Michael Jordan. Also the year that the Drug Price Competition and Patent Term Restoration Act was signed into law by Ronald Reagan. This law gave incentives to pharmaceutical companies to develop drugs 
by allowing them to maintain patents, thus allowing them to have a monopoly on the market for potentially life-saving or life-changing drugs. The act allowed the life of patents covering a drug to be extended by a portion of the time the drug is under regulatory review by the FDA, allow pharmaceutical companies to make a profit after putting years and years of research and development into these drugs. Let's go back to the article. Prescription drugs may cost more with insurance than without it by Charles Ornstein and Katie Thomas. Having health insurance is supposed to save you money on your prescriptions, but increasingly consumers are finding that that isn't the case. Patients can often get a better deal for drugs through third-party sources, not from manufacturers. Although there are no national figures to track how often consumers could have gotten a better deal on their own, one industry expert estimated that up to 10% of drug transactions involve such situations. If true, if true nationwide, that figure could total as many as 400 million prescriptions a year. Pharmacy benefit managers, the companies that deal with drug benefits on behalf of insurers, often do negotiate better prices for consumers, particularly for brand name medications. But that's not necessarily true for generic drugs. Different insurers end up paying prices for individual drugs, further compounding confusion for consumers. Some insurers require a set copay for each prescription, say 15 or $20, even when the insurer reimburses a pharmacy for a cheaper rate. Consumers also can face penalties if they do not use their insurance and pay cash to save money. In many cases, insurers won't let them apply those purchases to a deductible or out-of-pocket spending maximum. As patients face more of the burden of covering medical expenses, there is an increasing focus on the price of drugs and more specifically, how that price changes based on where the drug is purchased from. So now let's go back to Intermountain Health and the not-for-profit generic drug company that they're creating with three other health systems. To help patients by addressing the often unwarranted shortages and high costs of life-saving generic medications, Intermountain Healthcare is leading a collaboration with Ascension Health, SSM Health, and Trinity Health in consultation with the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs to create this not-for-profit generic company. These five organizations represent more than 450 hospitals around the U.S., but these hospitals are the first to take this step. Other health systems are planning to join this not-for-profit initiative, which will make essential generic medications more available and more affordable, bringing healthy competition to the marketplace for generic drugs. You might be thinking, why would these hospitals go into creating a not-for-profit generic drug company when they have no experience, uh, they don't have any expertise in the area? Well, well, I'm going to bring you to another paper by Aaron Fox called How Pharma Companies Game the System to Keep Drugs Expensive. It was published in 2017. Aaron Fox is a director of drug information at the University of Utah Health a teaching pharmacist who tracks drug shortages for the American Society of Health System Pharmacists. She said that the branded drug manufacturers go through various loopholes to extend their patents. One of them is for drug manufacturers to simply pay a generics company not to launch a version of the drug. Another thing that these drug companies do is submit citizen petitions offering drug companies another way to delay generics from being approved. 
This allows these citizen petitions ask the FDA to delay action on pending generic drug application. By law, the FDA is required to prioritize these petitions. However, the citizen filing concerns are not individuals, they're corporations. The FDA recently said branded drug manufacturers submit 92% of all citizen petitions. Many of these petitions are filed near the date of patent expiration, effectively limiting potential competition for another 150 days. In order for generics companies to create a generic version of a branded drug, they need to buy the drug from these branded drug manufacturers so that they could create a bioequivalent in the lab. Once the bioequivalent is made and submitted to the FDA and approved, then these generics manufacturers can sell the drugs on the market. Since the branded pharmaceutical companies are not selling the drug to generic companies, they're not allowed to make the bioequivalents thus allowing them to hold a monopoly. So that leads us into our conversation with our first guest, Sean Nicholson. He's a health economist and director of the Sloan program at Cornell University. And we're gonna to talk to him about these topics. So prescription drugs, uh, most people need them, but uh, not everyone can afford them. Uh, so today we're here with Sean Nicholson, a professor in the Department of Policy Analysis and Management at Cornell University, to discuss this subject. Um, he's the director of the Sloan Program in Health Administration and a research associate with the National Bureau of Economic Research. Thank you for so much for being here with us today. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And uh, before we started, uh, we want to go through some kind of personal kind of background questions. Hopefully, not too personal. Yes. <laughs> we'll start from. Kind of where you're from, where you went to, where you went to for your education, whatnot. Sure. Um, I sort of going way back. I spent the first ten years of my life overseas. Um, I don't remember living in Nigeria, Colombia. I do remember living in Brazil, and then moved to D.C. when I was ten. I got my undergraduate degree in economics from Dartmouth College. Graduated there in 1986. Then worked as a management consultant for four years, consulting mostly to hospitals. Um, taught high school for a couple of years. Um, decided I wanted to get a PhD in economics. I did that at University of Wisconsin-Madison and then was a assistant professor at Wharton at uh, University of Pennsylvania for seven years and I've been at Cornell since 2004. Now that we know Sean a little bit, now let's get into the meat of the topics. So we talked a little bit about kind of, um, kind of pharmaceuticals and PBMs and kind of that negotiating power. Uh, another article that sent you was about how um, there's a few health systems that are working together to form a not-for-profit uh, generics company. Um, and it's going to be interesting because these organizations, they represent over 450 hospitals kind of around the U.S. So kind of... What we're looking at today is kind of the, between the price for the consumer, the price of health systems. So I think John had the first question. Yeah, so an issue that has been really important as of late concerns uh, startups such as GoodRx and Blink Health. Um, and these startups often capitalize on consumer anger over high drug prices and sort of how consumers can get the best prices for their drugs. 
um, especially because oftentimes that these companies offer lower prices than insurance plans. Um, so I was hoping if you could speak to the disruption that these startups might cause to the business model of sort of larger pharmaceutical for, firms or PBMs. And as a follow-up, do you see these startups having a future uh, given the current pharmaceutical trends? Yeah, good question. So let's perhaps maybe start with the uh, the consortium of health systems, if I can, mm-hmm. uh, that are of thinking course. about forming their generic company. So I, I think it's, it's consistent with some of the themes that we've been talking about this morning. It's sort of the frustration of... So, so just to sort of set the stage, from the prescription drug, from the pharmaceutical industry's perspective and biotech, most of their revenue comes from the retail pharmacy sales or physician office sales. So it's it's more when you know someone gets a prescription from the physician, goes to the pharmacist, fills that prescription, or has cancer, goes to the physician's office, gets an infusion of the cancer drug. So that would be the lion's share of, of revenue generated by the pharmaceutical and biotech industries in the U.S. Clearly, when patients are in a hospital, they need drugs, and pharmaceutical firms are selling drugs to the hospitals. Um, so it's it's not as important to the pharmaceutical industry because a, a patient might be in a hospital for five or six days. They may get some drugs during those five or six days, but it's the drugs that that person takes the rest of their life outside of the hospital that's most of the revenue for the pharma and biotech firm. But what hospitals, you know, they're, they're purchasing these drugs, and what they've noticed is that there are situations when the price of an old, common, in their eyes, generic drug just spikes, and it creates this unexpected cost shock to them. They budgeted a certain amount for for prescription spending, and all of a sudden it's gone up because, not because what we usually read about in the paper, some new CAR-T therapy that costs $450,000, and it's patent protected, but it's a drug that was made in 1970 that used to have 10 suppliers and now it has one supplier and that supplier says, hey, I'm suddenly a monopolist, I'm gonna raise the price. And so the hospitals I think are basically saying enough is enough. If enough of us pull together and create essentially a company that can compete with these, these pesky generic companies that are taking advantage of their sort of serendipitous monopoly power, it'll keep everyone in check. It's very intriguing. I think on the one hand, your initial reaction is Intermountain Healthcare, which I, I think is the, the, the ringleader, the yep. catalyst. Yep. <laughs> um, Intermountain Healthcare is in the business of, of running hospitals and physician practices. What does it know about pharmaceuticals? You know, this is, sounds like a recipe for disaster. But I think what will happen is that they will collectively, these 400 or so hospitals, will outsource the manufacturing. So they're not going to get in the business of building a plant that produces these generic drugs. They're basically going to say, the 400 of us can commit X volume of purchases next year for all of these products. And they're going to try to bypass the company that's making the generic drug and sign a contract with another company that could easily make it, but isn't now because they don't have enough volume. But if the volume gets committed, they'll be like, sure, you know, we'll get back into that because there's no patent problem. That's not preventing it. It's just that the market was small. Everyone exited except one generic firm, in my example. They pop up price, but they can't pop up the price if three months later there's going to be a competitor that comes in because of this promise that 400 of them will buy from that second competitor. Um, so so that's, an, I think, you know, that illustrates to me a lot of things. One is 
again, frustration that the customer is not getting the price that they think they deserve, um, moving around the system rather than in the system to try to solve that problem. And it, it certainly is sending, I think, a strong message um, that, that these price increases will be tolerated. <laughs> They'll be paid for a short amount of time as, as necessary to get another supplier in there. Now, the, the GoodRx, I think, you know, has a lot of similarities. It's sort of um, an individual patient's version of, of the Intermountain Coalition. It's, it's the individual patient being frustrated that they're paying more than they think they should. If they go to call a certain person or go to a website, um, they can find, you know, guaranteed best price available. The, the, pro the problem with, so, so I think, again, that's, that's going to be disruptive but I think the GoodRx model is going to be less disruptive because it relies on patients being aware. And there have been enough, there have been a handful of studies now that show when these price transparency services are offered to patients, maybe 10% of them sort of pick up on it and actually use it. Um, and the, the impacts are relatively small. So, so there could be a tipping point when it becomes so easy and so apparent that these websites and services exist that enough patients start using them that it basically threatens everyone that they need to lower their prices. Um, so I think that tipping point could happen, but I think right now it's just the well-educated, technologically savvy patients who maybe just got lucky, found out about something, they're saving some money, but I don't think enough of their, their colleagues are doing it to really shake up the, the, the manufacturers of these products. Yeah. You go on to your next question. Uh, yeah. Sure. So uh, many consumer advo advocacy groups have been increasingly concerned about the trends of artificial shortage shortages and exorbitant prices of sort of the generic drug supply. So I was hoping you could speak to the mechanics of, and the underlying issue of this trend. Yeah. No, it's, and it's really, it's a phenomenon that sort of just come to head in the last three or four years. So I think, um, so the fun fundamentals are that you know, very important 1984 law, Hatch-Waxman. And what the Hatch-Waxman law did is it made it much easier than it had been for generic firms to, to enter and compete with a, a, a pharmaceutical firm that lost its patent. So what we now typically get is when there's a... So think of Crestor. You know, Crestor selling, you know, it's a statin drug for, for high cholesterol, selling $3, 4000000000 billion per year. When its patent expired... Because of Hatch-Waxman, what you have is, um, you know, the very first day that the patent expires, you have um, probably one company in there competing with AstraZeneca who makes Crestor, and the price starts to fall. And then six months later, you might get 10 or 12 companies entering. And so, so this has, has saved the industry, saved consumers a lot of money, probably more than people appreciate. So 90% of prescriptions are for generic drugs. And generic drugs are generally inexpensive. Now, what happens, though, is over time, some of the, those generic firms that were in there selling the, the bioequivalent product move on to other more lucrative areas. And, and what's happened is, not with Crestor, because that's a big market. I don't think this would ever happen with Crestor. But there are these old products that used to have three, four, five generic manufacturers. Um, not for pernicious reasons, but some of them have just decided to exit the market. The market got small. People started taking other drugs. There ended up just being one company. 
And then that one company does what economists tell that one company to do, which is to take advantage of your market power. It's not illegal. There's nothing illegal going on here. But what it does mean is it's because the patents have expired, it's easy for other companies to get back in. So I think of them as sort of temporary periods of time where one company sort of wins the lottery. It's the, the last remaining <laughs> generic firm. It drives up its prices, articles get written, consumers gnash their teeth, advocacy groups um, materialize. And then the other generic firms that exit and say, oh, now that the price is five times what it used to be, it's profitable to get back into that market. They'll get back in, the prices will come down, the media will then move to the next <laughs> generic drug. But, but what's aggravating this is um, there have been some instances of manufacturing problems so, so my description was like just sort of because of market forces, you went from, say, five generic firms to one. Sometimes you have two. One of them gets um, wrapped on the knuckles by the Food and Drug Administration because their, their manufacturing process has a glitch. So the FDA might shut down one of the two and say, you've got to clean up your manufacturing process. So that creates a monopoly because of a supply problem. Once they figure out that supply problem, that second firm will come back in. Um, so, so there's there's been more of those, and it, you know, generally we'd say, well, that's a good thing. We want the FDA looking out for things that we can't observe as consumers. But it does also mean that um, then economics, supply demand on the supply side. If one of the suppliers gets shut down, that gives more market power to the remaining supplier. Do you, do you see any solutions to try to shorten that time where one generic company has a monopoly on the market? Well, I, I think the, the Intermountain Coalition is, is one of those. Mm. Um, uh, so, so I think that's, that's probably a good one. But I think you know, other generic firms might just start becoming, in some sense, nimbler. That you, you ima imagine that there's you know, some generic firms that have tremendous manufacturing capability. It's just a question of how are they going to deploy that manufacturing capability. I think now there should be firms out there that see a, a price starting to trend up and they move into that market to take advantage before you see the sort of headline grabbing price spike. Um, so, so I think, you know, you, you can fool companies once. I think it's harder to fool them a second time. So I think there's probably now in the era of big data firms whose business is to sort of predict when there's going to be a small number of suppliers and move in, you know, as a generic firm, move in before before everyone else does. Do you think, um, <clears throat> I read uh, another article by, um, it was in the Harvard Business Review by Aaron Fox uh, from Utah Health, uh, this was in 2015. And they're talking, they talked about um, kind of these branded drug manufacturers kind of delaying the generics um, kind of patent through, you know, citizen petition, uh, petitions uh, rather. So basically petition that, you know, as a corporation, as a person, uh, they could submit to the FDA and extend their patent life for another 150 days. And in other instances, they've limited uh, the generics um, kind of availability to drugs so that they can make bioequivalents. So do you think there's going to be a big reaction to, you know, this consortium of health systems, uh, you know, trying to get these drugs so that they can make bioequivalents if, you know, you know, after the interim next few years, they're going to be kind of contracting out. Um, I assume at, at some point they're going to try to make it themselves and gather that expertise. 
So how do you think the pharmaceutical companies are kind of are going to react to that? Yeah. Now this is, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting area. <laughs> I'm biased. Um, so I think you know what 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 makes what you're describing frustrating is, I think most U.S. citizens, if you carefully explain the patent system, will recognize that there's very very valuable things about issuing patents that. Um, the ability of a company to get a 20-year patent that protects anyone else from making that product is necessary for them to put the money in to develop the drug. I think most people understand that. And, and as consumers, we're willing to pay a premium, essentially, on products. Um, because without that premium, that product wouldn't exist. So, so that's why we have patents. And I think most people, if you explain it to them, will say, Thank God we have patents because otherwise we wouldn't have all these 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 things that are making us healthier and extending our life. The problem is, um, once the product exists, there's just tremendous incentives for the company that is now selling that product at a pretty good price to try to get as much of that that patent protected period as possible. And so, what you're describing is, is sometimes referred to as evergreening. So companies will now issue many 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 patents. To sort of protect their product, and and their you know their perception is, you know, let the legal system decide whether these patents are legitimate or not, um, and then conversely, you get the generic firms trying to challenge these patents. So, but as a policymaker, it's really hard to know sort of what is the right length of the patent. But I, I think pharmaceutical firms, I don't want to say they do themselves a disservice, but the sort of last ditch patent battles don't generate a lot of good public relations for the pharmaceutical firm because it's not it's well after they've initiated the research and development they've had their patent period i think most consumers are like it's time now for generic drugs to enter but i think the reality is you know the legal system is the one i think more than policymakers the legal system is the one that's going to have to figure this out you know can there be um decisions rendered that sort of send the right signals to, to both sides, the side that wants to extend the patent and the side that's trying to challenge that. So I think it's more the, the courts that will determine this than policymakers. Okay. Um, I guess what consideration should like normal Americans have in the future in terms of buying their prescriptions? Like in this new landscape that we're kind of venturing into. Yeah, well... I mean, so one concern is um, that the innovation that we're seeing now, so the, the new drugs are being approved, are being priced at very, very high levels. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes they're associated with tremendous health improvements. So, you know, I think in some sense these should be celebrated. So, you know, an example from a few years ago is the, the hep C drugs. So if you had hepatitis C prior to Harvoni and Savaldi being, um, being launched, you would have taken interferon, 20% probability it would have helped your condition. Very bad side effects. Now along comes a couple of new drugs from um, Gilead, and the, the cure rate goes from 20% to 90%. And the probability that as a patient you need a liver transplant goes way down. So, so that should be celebrated. And from a health perspective, it's a phenomenal breakthrough. Now, it's priced at $70,000. So um, 
if you spread that $70,000 over all the people in an insurance plan, it's not intolerable. But for the patient who either isn't insured, which thankfully doesn't happen that often, or the patient who has to pay 20% of $70,000, it's still an issue. It's like, yes, I recognize the health benefit, but where am I going to come up with $14,000, 20% of seventy? Um, so I think we're just increasingly seeing these products that, that are improving health, so that's good. But they're raising the question of um, if the insurance company is covering it, it's going to raise prices for everyone. And is it worth it for those higher prices? And for the patient who needs to pay a percentage, how do we prevent that from, from creating real personal suffering, financial? Yeah. So I guess moving forward and going back to what you said earlier about big data, how could sort of companies or even the average consumer leverage these new tools in this changing landscape to improve the industry and sort of make healthcare more affordable for everyone? Well, you know, I think the first thing, the first thing they can do is, um, you know, tap into what their health insurer knows about prices and, and use that information as effectively as possible. And it's probably more relevant in the physician space and the hospital space. So an example would be um, the patient gets diagnosed with, with diabetes. They're now searching for an endocrinologist in their area who can treat them for the diabetes. Their health insurer knows exactly which endocrinologists are in the network and what those endocrinologists have asked to be paid for their services. So I think the savvy patient that wants to be an active consumer should approach their health insurer and say, before I pick a specialist who I'm going to see for the next five or 10 years, I want the full information on what all of those possible physicians is asking to be paid for a standard service and how good are they? You know, help me insure, pick somebody who's good for me, but also good for my insurer. Um, and, and the insurer has every incentive to have that conversation. Um, now, the, the endocrinologists are a little nervous because now they're thinking, wait a minute, when I negotiate with the health insurer, it's no longer behind the closed doors because the, the patient's going to see, oh, you were that uppity endocrinologist that held out for an extra $100 a visit. So the, you know, the physicians are a little bit nervous, and, and they, they basically have signed agreements sometimes saying that those prices won't be shared. But I think that's where it has to start. The insured person getting access to data that their insurer has that would benefit them and would benefit their insurer. Now, maybe it doesn't benefit the physicians, but there has to be a, a sort of way of figuring out how to help the patient without harming you know, substantially everybody else. Do you foresee, I guess, these insurers developing developing these capacities, or do you think there's going to be kind of firms on the outside kind of doing the research so that they could educate consumers? Well, I think both. And so I think it's going to be really interesting to follow because the, the insurer has better information for that person. But if the insurer has signed a contract, in my example with those endocrinologists, that says we won't reveal to the public these prices that we've negotiated. It's sitting on the great data and it's basically not able to share it. Um, and so, I mean, I think that just means there's gonna be profit opportunities for other companies that won't get quite as good information. So if there's 10 endocrinologists in Cleveland in the network, maybe they can get data on seven of those 10 or six of those 10, but they have no problem sharing it and they wanna share it. 
So then the question is, will that patient be aware of that other company? And will the fact that they only have imperfect information be a big problem or a small problem? So I think both are going to happen. And I think this is an example where I think the insurer will start to gobble up some of those other companies. Because those other companies, I think, will will bring data and skills that complement what the insurer has. Um, so I think, I guess that's that's what we now call frenemies, right? So these, these <laughs> the insurer and these startups will be enemies, but um, with acquisitions, they might become frenemies. And the, the insurer might want to keep them there close to their, to their best. That was a great conversation with Abid and Sean Nicholson. Uh, we kind of went all around in terms of going from pharmaceutical companies to PBMs to um, kind of generics and kind of, you know, going all the way to, you know, how Cornell is uh, number one in the country in hockey. Uh, so that's a wonderful thing. Uh, there's another thing that I want to touch on, and, you know, I... Before I came to Cornell, uh, another one of my jobs, I was assistant to uh, these executives at this pharmacy consulting firm. And so I reached out to them, uh, Ira Polterak, who's the COO, and Marvin Finifrock, who's the divisional president of clinical and purchasing services for comprehensive pharmacy services, um, and kind of talked to them um, about generics and how Intermountain is kind of getting in this business, and um, I'm going to just describe a little bit of our conversation that we had. Uh, both of these um, executives uh, are licensed pharmacists, uh, and they've been pharmacists for over 20 years and really have been leaders in their field. Uh, CPS is a national leader in providing pharmacy solutions and support pharmacy leadership, provide optimized pharmacy best practices, and innovative technology solutions by helping um, really health systems really improve their pharmaceutical services and uh, give, provide them with a lot of cost savings with their advanced analytics. They, comment, they commented on how the Intermountain Group started this nonprofit generic uh, drug company. And uh, one of the concerns that they had is that there's going to be a tremendous amount of problems that they're going to run into due to the FDA and making sure that these generic drugs are bioequivalents. Uh, in the short run, Intermountain had announced that they will be subcontracting with current uh, companies in the field, current generics companies on the field, kind of purchasing um, as a large group, uh, group purchasing organization or GPO, um, uh, in order to address these shortages. But what Ira and uh, Marvin elaborated on was that most of these shortages are due to issues in terms of raw materials, in terms of the factories uh, internationally providing the raw materials for these drugs to be made. Um, so it's not really the generic drug companies uh, necessarily um, spiking the price. A lot, uh, some of it has to do with the raw materials productions in terms of drugs not being um, available. Um, CPS has relationships, um, CPS themselves have relationships with 503A companies, uh, these raw material companies, and contract with them 
Uh, Marvin actually negotiates with them um, so they can provide um, alternatives for uh, these um, drugs that are in shortages um, for hospitals throughout the country in 48 states, including Puerto Rico. Um, and Puerto Rico um, is a place where um, CPS has several contracts with hospitals. And, um, you know, one real issue was uh, the hurricane that occurred, Hurricane Maria, that made, um, that laid waste to Puerto Rico and really caused a lot of issues in terms of people being able to get power to hospitals and people not being able to get their medication. And CPS uh, um, really supported these hospitals. Um, they sent satellite phones, they chartered planes and sent the drugs on these private planes to the remote airports so that the pharmacists at these hospitals could really treat patients and help them out. Um, they even sent water filters so that the personnel um, who were there um, uh, could actually get clean portable, potable water. Um, so they've been, you know, at the forefront um, at these disaster areas. Um, uh, one issue that Ira and Marvin kind of talked about was how brand pharma companies aren't really going to be happy about these not-for-profit groups popping up because um, now these um, other groups that are that don't necessarily have the expertise are going to start learning more about the industry and start and start to try to control. Uh, the supply chain. Uh, this isn't really a new concept. You know, wholesalers are currently in this industry. It's just that generic drugs have such low margins that a lot of these for-profit uh, generics companies um, and pharmaceutical companies, prescription drug companies, uh, don't really find the need to get into these industries because it's low margin. They're not going to make any money for it. Uh, pharma can't really overreact in terms of uh, these companies popping up, you know, you know, Intermountain Health, Ascension Health, SSM Health, uh, and the VA, they, you know, they oversee 450 hospitals, so they can't, you know, try to um, price gouge them or um, place pressure on them because that's a significant amount of hospitals, a significant amount of business. Another thing that Ira and Marvin um, kind of talked about was that contracting is really easy. Developing the infrastructure and the expertise so that this uh, non-for-profit generics company um, can actually sell drugs that are FDA approved is another matter entirely. There was an article that, that Marvin referenced in 2015 about you know how uh, health systems have been moving in towards um, kind of integrated delivery systems uh, in terms of healthcare. And they thought, you know, in these pharmaceutical journals, that eventually it might get to these points where, um, you know, not-for-profit companies are really fed up um, with these exorbitant prices uh, and create something themselves. Now that these, you know, not-for-profit not private companies are feeling like they're getting price gouged, they're really fighting back um, by creating these companies, these new collaborations. Uh, these new formations are really going to shock pharmaceutical companies and make them think twice uh, before they even think about raising the prices again. Um, you know, something in the future that they talked about is that these mergers are going to continue. Uh, you know, a lot of these pharmaceutical companies are worried that these mergers are going to affect the bottom line, so they're going to look for collaborations within each other, uh, within the large pharmaceutical and, um, you know, prescription drug and generic companies. 
um, and find new partnerships are going to be more difficult. But in terms of deregulation, uh, the new tax laws have really incentivized for these companies to kind of form together. IRA specifically sent an article um, that I feel is really interesting uh, and very topical in that there's these large uh, grocer, grocery companies, so Kroger, Albertsons, you know, think of, think of your Wegmans in this, uh, Wegmans type grocery stores, uh, are banding together and suing companies like Mylan. Mylan's a company that uh, does EpiPens, there's Teva, which is the largest generics company uh, in the world, Endo, and other companies, based on a conspiracy. This was published in Fierce Pharma by Eric Sakowanowski. And there's a 241-page uh, lawsuit that I'm going to put up on our website today that I'll talk about in a little bit, um, where there's an overarching uh, conspiracy to artificially inflate prices on drugs. Um, so these pharmaceutical uh, executives, for the generic uh, drug executives, are allegedly colluding uh, to basically... Um, Making make sure that any time one company increases their price, that it's a coordinated effort, that they slowly increase prices so that their profits can be could be increased greatly. Um, and these things happened at industry trade events, golf outings, dinners uh, for the men. In terms of women's, there's women in industry uh, kind of presentations and meetings, and uh, it's really going to be interesting how this kind of shakes out. Um, because this is a big deal. Um, you know, these are all the largest uh, pharmaceutical companies that create these drugs. So it's probably going to be a very large settlement uh, at the end of this. As this show is coming to a close, uh, you know, uh, we talked about, you know, prices in terms of uh, the customer going to, you know, these companies like Blink and GoodRx, allowing them allowing patients to really seek out where they could find the cheapest drugs, even though there are some drawbacks in terms of um, them not being able to use the payment that, made, that they made for the drugs on their deductible, um, they could still get cheaper drugs overall, um, even considering the cost of um, you know, their insurance and their member benefits as well. Uh, we also talked about how... Um, the pharmaceutical companies are kind of scrambling as, um, you know, these not-for-profits um, partnerships are formed between health systems. Um, you know, the industry perspective uh, coming from Ira and Marvin is that there's not going to be too much of a difference between now and then until these not-for-profits um, kind of get a... Um, expertise, gain expertise in the area because they're going in blind or somewhat blind because these pharmaceutical companies have been dealing with the regulations for years. Uh, so it's going to take at least three or four years. Uh, overall, uh, a lot that's going to happen with um, this industry in general will be dependent on uh, who is in office. Uh, as long as the Republican um, Republicans uh, hold a majority in the Congress, Looks like there's going to be further deregulation, so that you're going to see more of these uh, partnerships uh, kind of happening. Um, and uh, unless the Democrats take over, we'll see how uh, kind of the midterm elections go. 
in terms of um, what will happen in the industry and if there's going to be changes. Uh, the tax law has already taken effect in terms of incentivizing these companies and um, there being a lot of profit-maximizing opportunities for them. Um, I really want to you know, thank you guys for listening. Uh, I want to thank Sean Nicholson, Marvin Finneyfrock, uh, and Ira Poltrak for allowing me to interview them for this week for the inaugural show. Uh, I want to give a big shout out to Jonathan Abbott and Suppen Shaw. Uh, Suppen is uh, editor for the show and also a blogger for our show. Uh, we're going to be posting uh, the podcast of this episode later this week. Uh, and you can see Suppen's blog post at healthconsciouspodcast.wordpress.com. Um, you'll be able to listen to a condensed version of this podcast uh, on the site. I also want to thank the Sloan Program in Health Administration uh, in the School of Human Ecology at Cornell University and Cornell Radio for their support. Um, uh, specifically, I'd like to give a special thanks to Sean Nicholson, Julie Carmel, Anthony Herman, and Brooke Hollis uh, for their backing from this project from the beginning. Uh, from the Hill, for the Hill, uh, this is Joseph De Los Santos from Health Conscious Podcast, and I hope you guys have a great night. That's a good point to end. Uh, I have one closing question for you. Um, how how's the hockey season going for you and uh, Dartmouth? So I, I know I know <laughs> yeah. Cornell is number one right now. Well, I'm a Cornell season ticket holder, so <laughs> I do have a warm spot for Dartmouth because my senior year I was the radio announcer for I did play by play for Dartmouth hockey, um, and I I certainly am trying to be loyal to Dartmouth sports, but it's hard not to to be on Cornell's uh, side right now. They're number one in the country. Um, I go to every other game, at least in theory, I could go to every other game, um, but it's been really exciting. So, uh, yeah, go Big Red. Go yeah. Big Red. There we go. Agreed. Yeah. All right. That will wrap it up. Yeah. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. It. You're Thank welcome. You, My pleasure. Yeah. Enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Cool. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.